I don't know about you, but I love Sunday mornings. The Dojiro family loves Sunday mornings. It's the, the pinnacle of our week. If you look at it as uh, Europeans do, it's the week end. So it's the end of the week. Sunday's the last day of their calendar week. And it makes for a great day to end a week on. We in America start our week, our calendar week on Sunday. And it's a great day to begin your week on. So however you look at it, what a great day Sunday morning is. And I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity to be able to step into the pulpit for Adam in his absence as he's down in in Texas today and I'm grateful to the elders and and Adam for giving me the opportunity to to speak from God's word with you would you bow with me in prayer as we open God's word heavenly father you are amazingly good to us Lord, we're excited to think about the fact that we will be able to think about that goodness for all eternity. And Lord, all eternity will not suffice for everything that we could come up with to praise your name, Lord, and we're grateful for it. Lord, we're grateful that we can sing songs about what you've done for us, about what you're doing through us and what you will do. Lord, we're grateful that we have your word that we can turn to, we can read it, we can know it. Lord, you didn't leave us abandoned on this earth to try to search for you and find you, but you've given us your word and and you even sent your son, the living word, Lord, that we could understand you all the more. So help us this morning, Lord, as we look at that word. Lord, help us to leave here different than when we came in. Lord, help us to leave here more like your son, encouraged to live a life of holiness because we've looked at your word. In your name we pray, amen. Let me introduce you to a friend of mine, who's been dead a long time. We go back to about 160 AD, Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp had been taken into the arena and when the crowd heard that Polycarp, who was the, who was the, the bishop of Smyrna, the pastor of Smyrna, when the crowd heard that it was Polycarp that had been captured, there was an uproar of excitement. The proconsul the proconsul uh, tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. You see, for a Roman, the, the, Christian, the Christians were an atheistic group. They only believed in one God. And how pathetic was that? Because they didn't believe in the polytheistic gods of the Roman Empire. They didn't believe in the pantheon of gods that, that Rome believed in. So, Christians that only worshiped one God were essentially atheists. So here the proconsul is asking Polycarp of Smyrna to say down with the atheists, down with the Christians. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists, pointing to the non-believing heathen surrounding him. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. I love this quote by Polycarp. 86 years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them. Polycarp replied, it is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. And I will be glad though to be changed from that which is evil to righteousness. 
If you despise animals, the proconsul said, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and then is extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Polycarp said, bring on what you will. It was all done in the time it takes to tell. The crowd collected wood and bundles of sticks from the shops and public baths. The Jews, as usual, were keen to help. When the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer garments, undid his belt, and tried to take off his sandals, something he was not used to, as the faithful always raced to do it for him, each wanting to be the one to touch his skin. This is how good his life was. But when they went to fix him with nails, he said, leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And Polycarp was burned at the stake. 160 AD. Moving into the Reformation, let me introduce you to the martyrdom of William Hunter from Fox's Book of Martyrs. William Hunter had been trained to the doctrines of the Reformation from his earliest youth, being descended from religious parents who carefully instructed him in the principles of true religion. Hunter, then 19 years of age, refusing to receive the communion at mass, was threatened to be brought before the bishop, whom this valiant young martyr was conducted to by a constable. Bonner, the bishop, caused William to be brought into a chamber where he began to reason with him, promising him security and pardon if he would recant. Nay, he would not have it. He would have to be content. I'm sorry, excuse me. Nay, he would have to, he would have been content, content, content if he would have gone only to receive confession But William would not do so for all the world. Upon this, the bishop commanded his men to put William in the stocks in the gatehouse, where he sat two days and two nights with a crust of brown bread and a cup of water only, which he did not touch. At the two days' end, the bishop came to him and finding him in steadfast faith, sent him to the convict prison and commanded the keeper to lay irons upon him as many as he could bear. And he continued in prison for three quarters of a year during which time he had been before the bishop five times, besides the time that he was condemned in the consistory of St. Paul's, February 9th, at which time his brother, Robert Hunter, was present. Then the bishop, calling William, asked him if he would recant, and finding that William was still unchangeable, pronounced sentence upon him that he should go from that place to Newgate for a time, and thence to Brentwood, there to be burned. About a month afterward, William was sent to Brentwood where he was to be executed. On coming to the stake, he knelt down and he read the 51st Psalm until he came to these words, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Steadfast in refusing the queen's pardon, this is Queen Mary, this is um, Bloody Mary, the Queen of Scots, refusing to accept her pardon, he would become an, uh, that he would become an apostate. At length, one Richard Pond, a bailiff, came and made the chain fast about him. William now cast his psalter, the book of Psalms that he had, to his brother's hand, who said, William, think only on the holy passion of Christ and be not afraid of death. Behold, answered William, I, I am not afraid to die. 
Then he lifted his hands to heaven. Lord, 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 receive my spirit, he prayed. And casting down his head into the smothering smoke, he yielded up his life, sealing it with his blood to the praise of God. Polycarp of Smyrna, willing to die for Christ. William Hunter, willing to die for Christ. Last week uh, in youth group in Ransom, we rang about, we rang, we read about the life of Pang, a man in modern day Myanmar who was uh, discipling and, and evangelizing people in a city in Myanmar when over a hundred people from the village came down upon his house with stones, axes, and slingshots and trying to find him, but he and his family weren't there. They destroyed his house. They ripped up his Bibles. They broke his windows and doors. And I love the phrase that he says as he talks about it. He says, since that evening, they all, that's all the believers who, were, who met with him in his home, he says, they all decided that they just have to get ready to die for Christ. Polycarp of Smyrna, William Hunter during the Reformation, Pang in Myanmar. Ultimately, Peter, we're gonna be looking at the book of Peter. Peter would ultimately suffer all the way to the point of death and he would have to be, he would have to stand there and watch his wife die on a cross and he would encourage her as she was on the cross. And then it was his time, tradition says, he said he wasn't worthy to be hung like Christ and so they hung him upside down on the cross. This is Peter, this is William, this is Polycarp, this is Pang. Is this you? That's the question. We've been teaching through the book of First Peter in Ransom. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joshua Dojro. I'm the, the youth and family pastor here at Placerita Bible Church. And on Wednesday nights in Ransomed, that's our youth group name, we're going through the book of First Peter. So I invite you to open to First Peter chapter four. That's our next text. Last week, our last Wednesday, a few days ago, we went through First Peter chapter three and ended out the chapter. And I thought the best thing I could do this morning as I was considering taking the pulpit for Adam was to do the next text. And so that's where I want you to go with me is First Peter chapter four. We've been studying and going through the argument of Peter. And what I really wanted to do this morning, but I knew it would take too much time, was to read for 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, so the context would be built for you by the reading of God's word, just like the early church would have read the letter. They would have gathered together as they got this letter from the apostle Peter. And think about the context. You, you have to take yourself out of 2022 and put yourself in the first century church. Persecution was on the rise. You think you, had, you think you got it bad. They had Nero as their lord and master in Rome. Nero was as an unbeliever as you could get. Loved sin, loved flaunting his sin, loved persecuting Christians. This book is written sometime between 64 and 69 AD, about 30 years after Christ has died. I love reading Peter here because he's 30 years older than, than in the Gospels. And, and in the Gospels, I don't know about you, I relate to Peter. He, uh, he was a loud mouth maybe. He spoke too quickly at times, stuck his foot in his mouth at times, walked on water at times, tried to rebuke Christ once as if Christ needed rebuking, tried to defend Christ 
in his passion and his love for Christ, he, he had a sword on him and he tried to lash out and defend Jesus because he loved Christ as if Christ needed defending. That's Peter. And we've been walking our way through, through this book that's written by Peter 30 years later and, and you can hear it, a different Peter, a, a, a grown Peter, a, a matured Peter but you also hear the words of Christ in Peter. And I love that. You can, you can pick up on the things that sunk into Peter's brain 30 years before. You can hear the very words of Christ as Peter is, is teaching the church in 64 to 69 AD. This is around the time when Nero is going to burn Rome and blame the Christians. There's going to be a, an uprising of persecution like the world had never seen, simply for being a Christian. And again, if you think you have it bad, put, put yourself back then in their shoes, very difficult. There was no rights for a Christian back then. There was no one who could come to your aid. There were no lawyers who would defend you. You were simply persecuted. You had your goods taken away from you. You had your rights taken away from you and you couldn't say anything or do anything about it. It was bad back then. And so you can imagine the, the believers of the early church had probably written to the church in Jerusalem asking for help. What do we do? What do we do as persecution is on the rise? How do we handle it? What's the, the protocol that we have? And I don't know that they necessarily, we don't know that they necessarily wrote Peter himself, but it's Peter who wrote back. Imagine being in the early church. Imagine hearing Peter wrote us. Peter responded to our letter. And so you gather together as a, as a body of Christ and, and the, the elder or the pastor of that little body would have stood up in front of them and read the entire letter. And while we're not gonna do that, that's what they would have done. So I encourage you to do that sometime. Read the entire letter of Peter. Read the entire letter of 1 John and, and Timothy. Read those letters as they were written. They were written as a letter. And so that's what Peter wrote to the early church. And, and you get to chapter four where we are uh, in both in Ransomed. Again, if you're a high school student and you're not part of Ransomed or you're a junior high student, you should be. You should come on Wednesday nights. If you're a college student and you're not on my college student staff yet, you should be. Come Wednesday nights. If you're too old for youth group, well, that's too bad. Here we are. Welcome to Ransomed. We're going to go through the text this morning. But, but he starts off in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, and he starts off with the word therefore. And just like I tell the youth on Wednesday nights, when you see the word therefore, you've got to ask yourself, what's it? Therefore. Exactly. It ties together what he's about to say to what has been said. And so let me just give you a real quick overview of chapters one to three so far. And I love what Peter does in chapter one. He's writing about persecution. And ultimately, that's where we're at in chapter four. But he doesn't start talking about that. He doesn't address the issue in chapter one. He says, believer, step back. Step back from the persecution that you find yourself in. And he says, first of all, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope. So he says, first step back and praise God because of what he's done through Christ. So get an eternal perspective, look back and then look at what that living hope does. He says, look forward to heaven. You have your salvation secure. It's in heaven, it's waiting for you. No one can take it away from you and it's being protected by the power of God. So before he addresses where you are in your difficulty, he says, believer, step back. 
and get an eternal perspective on what's going on. Christ died for you. He caused you to be born again. He caused you to be born again, not based on your strength, your merit, or what you deserve or what you can do, but on what he did for you. And because of that, look what's waiting for you. Heaven, my friend. No matter what you go through, you've got heaven. And he says, in that perspective, we greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, we have to go through trials and difficulties of various kinds. It tests your faith. He says that salvation that we get to enjoy, the prophets longed to understand. That salvation that you enjoy today, the angels long to look into, he says in chapter one. So before addressing the difficulty, get a perspective, get the right attitude, get the right foundation. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, he says, because of that, actually, let me, let me point you to something in chapter one. Look at chapter one, verse 13. Chapter one, verse 13. He shifts gears. He says, therefore, again. But he says, therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is key right here, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, and here's an imperative, here's the command, be holy. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. This, I point this out because it's gonna come up to in, to in our text again in chapter four, but he says, like the holy one who called you, command, be holy. It's not optional. This isn't be holy when you feel like it. This isn't be holy on a Sunday morning when you come to church. This isn't be holy when it fits your schedule. Be holy. You who are in Christ, be holy. And then later, as we end chapter two, and, or end chapter one and go into chapter two, he starts saying what we need to do, put off malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy. This is chapter two, verse one, and all slander. And like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. Long for the, the word of God that teaches us how to be holy. Without God's word, we can't know how to be holy. So long for God's word. And then he gets into the beginning of the argument, the specific argument that he's gonna, he's gonna be talking about in chapter four. And it starts in chapter two, verse 11. Look what he says. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. He says, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. The battlefield, my friend, is not outside. The battlefield is not somewhere else. The battlefield is your soul. And if you're in Christ and you have that eternal perspective, salvation is waiting for you. Yes, you cannot lose that. But the fleshly lusts can, can, can slow you down, can hamper you, can hinder you in your service to the Lord. So abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your salvation is secure, but you can be disqualified. Your salvation is secure, but you, you can be slowed down. You can lose your joy. You can lose your hope by continually giving in to sin. And if you do continually give in to sin, John would say in 1 John, you need to question whether, you're not, whether or not you are of Christ. So here he says, abstain from fleshly lust. And then he goes on by saying in, in verse 13, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That's the beginning of this argument. Keep your behavior excellent. 
And he goes on to explain how, and he uses a word that we don't like in America. He says, submit, hupotasso. We don't like that word. Whenever someone uses that word, it kind of causes the hair on the back of our necks to stand up a little bit. It causes us to kind of squirm in our seats a little bit. We don't like being told that we need to submit to something. We're Americans, baby. We throw tea in the water. You can't tell us to submit. What are you talking about? I think at heart, we're all Texans, right? We don't submit. Let's go. But Peter, here's what Peter says. If you want to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, be an excellent citizen. Here's how you have to do it. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And it gets quiet and it gets heavy. Every human institution as to the king, as the one with authority or the governor sent by him to punish the evildoers and praise to those who do right. And he says, this is the will of God. And it obviously, we live in a country where we have a constitution, where we have ways that we can still disagree with what's being said and what's being done, but the attitude is that one. That's gotta be our attitude. Submit, he said, to every human institution because this pleases God. And we start automatically, hands start coming up, right? We start wanting to, we start wanting to debate that. And we start wanting to say, but, but Peter, hold on, Peter, wait. And Peter doesn't hold on, he keeps going. Look at verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters. And we say, wait a minute, you don't know my employer. But wait, Peter, you don't understand the difficulty that I'm going through. But Peter doesn't stop there. In fact, Peter, I think, knows what we're gonna say. And so he gives us the example, verse 21 through 25, and he says Christ is the example. Look at Christ, the ultimate example of one who submitted to the governing authorities, the ultimate example of one who suffered unjustly, the ultimate example of one who took it with a submissive attitude. And look what it says about him in verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Peter's underlining the, the, the point here. Christ did nothing wrong and submitted. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We struggle with that. When someone's making fun of us or, or causing problems, we want to fight back. We want to talk back. Even if we're losing the battle, we want the last word, don't we? Oh, you may have won the battle, but the war's not over, friend. Right? That's how we are. We fight back. We don't want to, to be quiet. And yet, Peter says, Christ is the example. Look, in verse, verse 21, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Every one of our arguments, when we wanna raise our hand and say, but Peter, wait, he goes, look to Christ. But Peter, you don't understand my boss. Look to Christ. You don't understand how I'm suffering unjustly and you don't understand my government and you don't understand the things I'm going through. Peter says, look to Christ. But he's not done. He keeps going with this submission thing. Wives, in the same way, he says in, in chapter three, verse one, be submissive to your own husbands. And he goes on and on and on. It's one argument after another. I'm actually gonna argue that, that Christ's example was a submissive example, even though the word submission isn't used. And, and he tells husbands, husbands likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel. And in youth group, we talked about ladies or we talk to the men, I'm sorry, I said men, be that man that your wife wants to submit to. 
Be the man that she wants to submit to. Wives, be that, be that wife that your husband wants to love, right? To sum it up, he says in verse eight, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing. And all of this can only be done if what happens in verse 15, I believe it is, yes, 15 is going on in your heart. Look what he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The only way that we can be submissive to governing authorities in attitude, the only way that we, can, that we can be submissive while we're working or anyone who's above us is really his point. Uh, and when he says submit, uh, servants submit to your master. So it could be, as we talk to the youth, it could be your coaches, your parents, your teachers, it could be whoever is above you in authority. The only way you can do it is if you have sanctified Christ in your heart. As Lord. Now, I, I really wish the as Lord part wasn't there because it'd be easier. Sanctify Christ in your hearts. That's so much nicer. A little sweet little place for Jesus right there. He's just in my heart. He's just right there. Just got to love Jesus, right? But it's sanctify Christ as Lord, as master, as the one who reigns in authority over my heart. Lord means the one who is in charge by virtue of possession or power, the one who is in position of authority, the Lord and master. This does not mean that you are your own master. This does not mean that you are the one that's in authority. It does not mean that you dictate the desires and the direction of your life. But what it does mean is that his will is your will, that his desire is your desire. It does mean that you do what he wants and you live for what he loves. Sanctify Christ, set aside Christ as Lord in your heart. And we understand what sanctify means. It's the setting aside of something, something special, something of value think about the old adage, right? Or the, when people would talk about your Sunday clothes, clothes that you wore on Sunday. Those aren't clothes that you would wear every day. Those were clothes that were set aside for special use, right? I told you guys before, my mama had a set of plates in our house. Those were set aside for special use. We didn't get to use them unless someone special was coming. And you knew if someone special was coming because mama would use those plates. They were set aside for special use, here, set Christ aside, not as a cute little guy sitting on the little, little bitty your throne of your heart that you've made up, but set him aside in your heart as Lord. That's what Peter is getting at. And you can't do any of this unless Christ is Lord in your heart. And then we get to our text in chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh 
as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Just before our text, I want you to see something though. And remember, remember, we're, in, we're not in 2022. Remember, we're there in the early church as persecution is rising, difficulty is rising, and, and people are wondering at what point do we fight back? At what point, at what point do we do something? Because what if they kill us, Peter? What if we die for this gospel? It would seem to the world that we're the losers and they're the winners, wouldn't it? If, if we die, why doesn't God come down with a strong and mighty arm and just take care of them so that the Christians could rise? Because death seems like a failure. And here Peter is encouraging them that death is not a failure. Death is the ultimate victory. Back up from chapter four, one verse, chapter three, verse 21, talking about Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Christ's death for the Romans was failure, but for God and for all eternity is the ultimate victory. So dying for your faith, he's, he's comparing us, not comparing us, but he's telling us, he's telling us once again, look to Christ. That's what he's telling us to do. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. It doesn't matter even if they kill you. The sting of death is no longer there and we'll get to that part in a second. The point is that Christ was the ultimate sufferer. Christ was the ultimate one who would suffer unjustly. But Christ's death was not the final period. Christ's death wasn't the end of the chapter and that was it, all was said and done. Christ's death was the beginning. Christ's death sealed your salvation. Just because evil seems to have won the day, just because they seem to have gotten away with hostilities and persecution, remember Christ, Peter says. Look to the one who is the ultimate example of God's purpose and pain even in suffering. And I'll be honest, no one likes suffering. I don't like suffering. We don't look for suffering. We don't look forward to it like we look forward to going to Disneyland, right? No one's excited about suffering. When I was a kid, I thought, I didn't understand this concept. I thought, why should the Christian suffer? Shouldn't it be that the non-Christian would suffer? If I'm of Christ, shouldn't God's blessing be on me? That's a really errant theology that I was buying into. It's prosperity gospel. If things are going well with me, God is pleased with me. But if things are going poorly with me, God must be angry with me. Wrong theology. Look to Christ, who bled and died on the cross for our sins. Look to Christ, Peter would say. We shouldn't adopt prosperity theology. Christ's death was a triumph and a victory, not a defeat and a failure. Death wasn't the end. And so therefore, Peter says, arm yourselves arm yourselves with the very purpose of Christ. And, and, and I wonder if the early believers were confused at that. I wonder if they, they thought Peter would say something else because remember it was Peter who did arm himself. Remember that? To, to defend Christ. Peter did arm himself. But here, what we're to arm ourselves with is a purpose. It's the very purpose of Christ. And this isn't, my friends, this isn't a conceal and carry kind of thing. This is a purpose that you're, to, that you're to have on the outside. This is a purpose that's to be visible in front of everyone. This is a purpose that shouldn't be hidden. Arm yourselves, body of Christ, with the purpose of Christ. Arm yourselves with his attitude, with his mentality. He says, arm yourselves with the same purpose. And what is that purpose? Remember, purpose is powerful. 
Purpose gives drive. Purpose dictates focus. And just as we saw in the life of Polycarp and we saw in the life of William Hunter, and we're going to see in the life in a little bit, well, in future years, in Peter's life himself, and in countless martyrs throughout the ages, that the purpose of Christ is powerful. What is the purpose? It's pleasing God no matter the cost. It's to live a life that's chained to the gospel no matter the cost. It's to preach the good news of Jesus Christ no matter the cost. Because we only have one life to live and armed with the very purpose of Christ, we can live it for the glory of the King no matter the cost, no matter what evil the world throws at us. We preach the gospel no matter the cost and death has no sting because Christ rose from the grave. We're gonna celebrate that in a couple weeks. The text encourages us, encourages the believer by focusing our purpose on the end goal and it's heaven. He already told us that in chapter one. Your salvation is secure. And he says, you're being protected by the power of God. That's better than SEAL Team 5. You, you will not not make it to heaven if you're in Christ. Your salvation is secure and waiting for you. It's good. It's there. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter the persecution. It doesn't matter if they ridicule you and they make fun of you and they hurt you. You have heaven waiting for you. Suffering for the gospel is hard. It's not easy. It's painful. It may mean loss of property. It may mean loss of life. But here's what Peter says. If you suffered in the flesh, and when he says suffered in the flesh, it's a throwback to 318 when he's talking about Jesus who suffered in the flesh and died. Jesus suffered and died. And he says, if you suffer in the flesh and you die, you cease from sin. That's good news. You're no longer waging war with this world. You're no longer fighting the battle of sin. You're no longer being tempted anymore. You're with heaven. You're where your salvation waits for you. You're with Christ. Amen. The worst weapon in Satan's arsenal is death. That's his silver bullet. That's the worst thing that Satan can do to you is kill you. But here's what Peter's saying. It's not for the believer, right? The world searches for the fountain of youth. We try, to, we try to circumvent death. We try to prolong life as long as we can. We look for face creams and Botox injections from diets to new cures for old diseases. And the world obsesses with cheating death because it marks the end. But for the believer, the believer can go to his deathbed with a smile on his face because all it is is flipping to the next chapter and it's opening the book to the better chapter, to what's to come, to eternity with Christ where the battle is done, the difficulty is done, the fight is done and you're with your heavenly father who by his great mercy caused us to be born again into a living hope because of Jesus Christ. Death has no sting for the believer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for this, he says, this corruptible must put on the incorruptible and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible flesh puts on the incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, death is swallowed up. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ rose from the dead. Death has no more sting for us. Death has no more victory over us. Paul says, oh, death, where's your sting? Where's the bite? It's gone. 
The worst that Satan could ever do is kill. That's the best thing for the believer. Don't fear death. Arm yourself with the purpose of Christ. Peter's point here is that we can have assurance that even when death comes knocking at the door, it's not failure, but rather it's victory. And in context here, the death is talking about suffering and persecution. And let's just be clear, there's suffering and suffering, right? You've been on the 405. You felt that suffering. You know what that's like, but that's not what Peter's talking about. You've been looking for a parking spot at the mall because you've got to go meet up with your friends and you can't find one and you're circling and your prayer life gets upped in that moment and you're like, Jesus said I can move mountains. I'm going to pray a parking spot there. And you've, you've, you've tried it. You've prayed that God would open up a parking spot. You've been there. That's not suffering. That's not. This is suffering for the gospel. This is preaching the word of God and suffering for it. And there's all kinds of levels of suffering. There's people making fun of you. There's people jabbing you and, and trying to belittle you because of your faith. That's suffering. There's suffering that goes on to physical suffering and that's being felt all around the world. That story about our friend from Myanmar, uh, that story comes from the voice of the martyrs and you can read about suffering that's happening all around the world even today. There's suffering that ends with death even today. The 405, friends, is not suffering. It is a test of your sanctification, yes. How patient are you with the Lord as you're struggling to find that parking place, but that's not suffering. Suffering for the gospel is something different, but here, as we're armed with the purpose of Christ, as we're armed, that's a military term, and by the way, it's an imperative. I forgot to mention that. Arm yourself with the purpose of Christ is an imperative that you are to have. You're to have the purpose of Christ in your life and that's gonna drive you towards something. Look at verse uh, two. Armed with the purpose of Christ and the attitude of Christ, we're ready to live in a way that's a testimony to the dying world. As to no longer live, he says, the rest of time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You now, armed with Christ and armed with the purpose of Christ, armed knowing that death has no power over you and there is no sting, you are now ready to live the rest of your time, not according to the will of men or the passions of men, or here he says, the lusts of men, what the world lusts after, what the world desires, but you live desiring the will of God. And the word lusts here is the same word that he used in chapter one and the same word that he used in chapter two. It's, it's passion, it's a strong passion. Typically we think of it in the negative, which is used here in the negative sense. Any passion though that is not God-centered but man-centered is a negative passion. And typically we associate it with sexual lust, but it's not just sexual. Any passion that is not God-centered and driving you to God is a passion that takes away from God. So he says here, arm yourself and, and live no longer in the rest of your time for the lusts of men, but live for the will of God. Live with passion for the will of God. I like how the apostle John says it in 1 John 2, 16. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And he's saying, you're gonna love something, friends. Your love and your passion and your desire will be for something. And if it's of the world, you have no love or passion or desire for the love of God. 
If you love the world and the things in the world, the love of the Father or for the Father is not in you. He goes on to say, for the, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We're talking about sanctification. We're talking about you living in a way that pushes you towards Christ and it pushes you towards being like Christ. And your life should day by day by day be looking more and more and more like Jesus Christ rather than looking less and less and less like Jesus Christ. It's not enough to compare yourselves to others and say, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not like Hitler. I've never killed anyone. I'm not that bad. And if, if, if holiness was a spectrum and, and the worst person, the worst sinner in the world is over here and Jesus Christ is on that end, typically we would kind of put ourselves over here. Well, I'm not, I'm not that bad, but God doesn't compare you to that guy or to these people. God doesn't even compare you to these people. He compares you to Christ himself. And you should be aimed at Christ and becoming like Christ in everything that you say and everything that you do and in the way that you act and the way that you talk and in the way that you walk. The problem is we are not at that end. When we compare ourselves to Christ, we come up lacking. We need Christ's righteousness. The theologians call it an alien righteousness. We need his righteousness to come to us because we don't have it on our own. We need Christ's righteousness to fulfill what God requires. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Because you're a new creation, you can now pursue the will of God and becoming like and, and you can be becoming like him in life, in character, and in action. It's not an optional thing, like I said earlier. Your holiness, your conduct, your behavior in front of the Gentiles is required. It's a command. And we could stop our lesson here and just say, how are we stacking up to that? How, how is your life before Gentiles, before the people outside the walls of this church? Are you stacking up in a way that they can look at you and they can see Christ in you? And in fact, he's gonna go on to say, uh, look at verse three, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He uses the perfect tense here. Believer, that's past. It's done. The time of the Gentiles is done for you. It's clearly marked off in your life as before Christ. So that time is done. You should be living for the will of God. And in all this, he says in verse four, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. He says they malign you. Your change in character, your change in desires, your change in pursuits causes them to go, whoa, something's different. There's something different about you than the way that you were. What is that? There should be something, friend, there should be something that marks you as different. If your life looks exactly like the life of someone outside the church, someone outside of Christ, we have a problem because you should be coming, you should be becoming like Christ and your life should be a little different. You should act differently. You should look differently because you're in Christ. 
And he says, because of this, and here's how we know this, because he says, they're surprised that you don't run with them. And look at the end of that. He says, they malign you. They persecute you. They come at you. The word malign means to speak in a disrespectful way that demeans, denigrates, or slanders. It defames. The way that you live exposes sin. As you live for a holy God and you live to please a holy God, your lifestyle will expose someone who enjoys a sinful lifestyle. It will be a direct contrast. And the result of that should be, should be, that you're being maligned by someone. It doesn't mean that they're out to kill you, but it should mean that your holiness in some way, in some way, not, not your words, not your actions, but just you're living a holy life should cause them to back up a little bit and in some ways be offended because, because you represent something that they can't do. Be holy. This means that you must be different from non-believers around you. You could ask yourself, when was the last time someone looked at your life and was convicted merely by your holiness? And what happens if your life isn't convicting and then you go to speak of holiness and you go to declare the gospel to someone and yet you haven't lived it? Friends, your life must back it up. You must be living a holy life. Don't get me wrong, Christ was around non-believers most of his day, but he didn't hang with them at the end. He was there for a reason and a purpose and a mission. He was with non-believers to present the gospel, to bring the kingdom near to them. When he backed away from them, who did he spend his time with? With the disciples, with other believers. He retreated from the ungodly to spend quality time with his friends who were believers. Look at verse five. Trying to wrap up quickly. But they, those, are those who malign you, they don't get away with it. They shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This term to give account literally means to pay back. It's uh, to meet a contractual or other obligation. It's to pay, pay out, or to fulfill. They may dish out persecution to you. And sometimes we want, we want that instant gratification of seeing how the Lord steps in in that moment, like, oh, you're messing with me, but if you mess with me, you mess with God. And we want to see that. But we don't always see that. But we can be rest assured that God sits ready. Look what it says in verse five. He is ready to judge the living and the dead, all the living and all the dead of all times. He sits on the throne and he is the righteous judge and you can't bribe him. You can't slide around. You can't like find a loophole. He is the judge and he is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will have to pay back. And we know what scripture says, they will never be able to fully pay back. Rather than be angry at them, rather than, praying that fire would come from heaven and consume them, we should be praying that they would receive the gospel. We should be moved by pity for what's to come rather than be angry. He says in verse six, for to this gospel, I'm sorry, for to this, the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead so that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live or they live in the spirit according to the will of God. He's not talking about preaching to dead people here. He's talking about people had been preached to who are now dead. 
they've heard the gospel and now they're dead. But even though they're dead, which to the world is failure because, because God didn't protect them, even though they're dead, he says they've been judged in the flesh, but they are alive in the spirit. They are victorious. That's the gospel that was preached. The power of the gospel is that you are saved through death. Death is not the final word. Death is not merely the last period in the last chapter of the book in your life and then your book closes. Death is merely the end of the earthly chapter and then the good begins. Sometimes we think this is it. Let's be honest, sometimes we think this is it. Sometimes we think, I wanna live now. I'm not really ready to die because I've got more stuff that I wanna do. I've got more toys that I wanna buy, more places that I wanna go. And, and, and we're kind of stuck thinking about this rather than the great hope of that which is to come. Death isn't the final chapter in the good part of life. Death is the final chapter in the tough part. Then comes the good. Death is the victory. Death is not the end. You believer, he says, will live according to the spirit of the will of God, according to God. You will live, not according to my word. It's not you're gonna live again according, according even to Peter's word. He says it's according to God, the God who never lies, whose word always means yes and amen. Death is not defeat, death is victory. So how do we wrap this up? How do we conclude this? Believer, if you're a believer, you're here as a Christian, you're listening to this as a believer, be encouraged to live for the will of God. Arm yourself, not with a knife like Peter did in a silly attempt to guard Jesus's life, although it wasn't silly for Peter. He loved Christ. He loved Christ and wanted to protect Christ. But 30 years later, Peter's probably smiling at himself when he thought about how he armed himself and he says to us not like that not like that arm yourself he says as an imperative arm yourselves with Christ's purpose arm yourself to live for Christ to live for the for the gospel no matter the cost to be chained to the love of God no matter the cost no matter the consequence no matter what evil the world might bring to you live for Christ have that purpose Knowing that Christ, I'm sorry, knowing that death is not the end, death is the beginning. Death is not failure, death is victory. Your life should be in the meantime marked by holiness and even a holiness that in some way should bring about some form of ridicule or persecution. You should be living in a way that's different. I'm not saying that everyone's gonna kill you, like I said before, because of your faith, but there should be something about you that causes someone else's cage to be rattled a little bit just because you're living for Christ and, and you won't tell the vulgar jokes and you won't watch the things that they're watching and you won't say the things that they say and you won't follow them into those dissipations and those evils. Your life should be marked different. There should be a noticeable difference between that of you and your, be and your neighbor. So if you're in Christ, be encouraged to continue with Christ. Be encouraged to stand firm for Christ. Be encouraged because death has no sting. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And so you can look at death like Polycarp of Smyrna, like William Hunter. You can look at death like Pang and all of his friends and you can say, we've decided to get ready to die for Christ. 
because we're not gonna back down. Be encouraged, believer. But if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're here today and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm a believer. Maybe as a kid, when I was five, I raised my hand at VBS, but I haven't lived for Christ, not the way that the text is talking about. In fact, when I evaluate my life, I don't live for Christ at all. And I don't don't even have passions for Christ or for God. If that's you, this text cries out to you, believe the gospel, listen to the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Because when you're lined up on that spectrum of holiness, God's gonna compare you to the most perfect man that ever lived, his own son, Jesus Christ. And compared to him, we fail miserably. You need him. You need his death. You need his forgiveness. You can be reconciled today. You can have that that shame and that guilt and the weight on your conscience of having lived a life of sin. You can have that removed by Christ and be forgiven. You can have that today. So if that's you, at the end of this, uh, at the end of today's uh, time at our service, there'll be people standing at that back door and I, I plead with you, run to them. Flee to them so that you can flee to Christ and you can beg mercy and forgiveness and be be given a joy and a hope that you've never felt before in your life. May today be a day that you leave this place differently because you looked intently at God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so many things to us. Your word is encouraging Lord, your word builds up and your word gives strength and your word helps us to stand when our knees shake. Your word helps us to be strong when we are weak. Lord, your word teaches us to look to Christ in all things. At other times, Lord, your word disciplines. Your word cuts. Your word convicts. Lord, your word teaches us that while we may think we're doing good compared to your son, we need help. Lord, and we're so grateful that you do offer help. You don't leave us wondering and wandering on this earth looking for help, but you sent your son and you sent your Holy Spirit, Lord, to illuminate us and to guide us. You've given us your word, Lord, that teaches and corrects and builds up and trains. And Lord, we're grateful for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help all the believers here today to be encouraged to stand for Christ to live a life of holiness, to live a life of sanctification where we're slowly becoming like that which we are. We're justified, we've been declared righteous and our life day after day, choice after choice is becoming like you. I pray that would be true of every believer here. And Lord, I pray for those who are not believers, who are moved by your word, who are cut to the quick in their heart. Lord, I pray that they would come to cry out to you for mercy and for forgiveness. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.